Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, and once you get there, just a moment, we'll stand and I'll read this for us. I'll let you get there first. First Corinthians chapter 10. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. This will be our text for this morning. Would you stand with me as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. This is the word of Christ. Father, I pray that you'll use this word this morning to encourage us, to instruct us, to convict us, Lord, to help us become more like your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This past week, 61-year-old Jocelyn, Jocelyn Gilliam was sitting in her home, in the backyard of her home, in Canada. She was in the backyard with her friends and her family, and the sky was turning a little darker than it normally did. The wind was picking up. There was a cool breeze blowing off of the Atlantic Ocean through their city, over to their home. And as they looked around, they could tell there was something taking place, but that was not unusual. They live on the northeast shore of Canada, so that's to be expected at times. But then suddenly, they all heard a roar, and they looked, and they saw a surge of water coming toward them. And little did they know that tropical storm Fiona had slammed into their town of 4,000 people. This was this past week. Now, we've read about Hurricane as Ian, right? And other things like that's been happening down in the Caribbean, in Florida. But this happened in Canada this past week. 
Jocelyn was swept away by the surge of water. She was swept into the current. The water swirled with the debris and the trees and the garbage, and it churned in a raging current. And her body was swiftly taken down into the water. She actually was sucked under a jeep, and she held on to that for dear life as she held her breath. Her brother-in-law swam toward her, and he, he fought the raging current. He screamed for her as he gulped water and tried to find her. And somehow, he was able to dive down and find her arm and pull her to safety. That storm devastated that little town. Some died, and many homes were destroyed. In an interview with Jocelyn and her family, they said they were not expecting that storm to hit, especially with that much rain. They were shocked when it came through their little village there. But there were warnings. There were warnings. Newscasters warned them of the coming storm. There were signs in the sky. The skies were getting darker. It was getting more dreadful outside. And some people in that city, that little town, were ignorant to the danger. Some ignored the danger, but there were warnings. In our text here, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, God gives us warnings. And he doesn't want us to be ignorant. He doesn't want us to ignore the warnings. And here Paul warns the church of the serious storms coming our way. And he warns that those who think they can spiritually stand to take heed lest they fall. The storms here in 1 Corinthians 10 aren't coming from the sky or over the ocean. They are raging in our souls every day. It's the storm of our sinful passions. It's the tornado of your temptations. It's the devastation of the desires outside of God's will. It's that, it's that temper that rages and yells at those we love. It's the lust that betrays the beloved one we have pledged to be faithful it's the bitterness that poisons our souls and, and poisons other relationships. It's the regret that weighs us down and shackles us from having joy and hope. If you don't heed the warning from 1 Corinthians 10, if you are unaware of the danger, then this spiritual storm will devastate you it will ruin you. It will sweep you away into the current of your sinful desires. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10 here, Paul warns when you think you can spiritually stand on your own to take heed lest you fall. And notice in verse number one, he doesn't want us to be ignorant of this reality. Look at verse one. For I do not want you to be unaware that word unaware means to be ignorant or to be unable to perceive something. It's a caution. It's a warning. This is Paul telling us you might be missing something. 
You, you might be going along in your life and you're living your life. You go to work or you go to school or you do whatever you're going to do and you're missing something. You're unaware of the danger that you're in right now. And what is the danger that Paul is warning the church about? Well, we saw it last week and you saw it in chapter 9. Look at chapter 9, verse 27. Look at the last word. Paul wants to warn us of the danger of being disqualified. And Paul was speaking about that for himself. He did not want himself to be disqualified. Remember last week we said what this means, this word is used in the New Testament to contrast those without faith with those who have faith, those who don't trust God, those who do trust God. And so here Paul says for himself in chapter 9, verse 27, that he himself is aware that he could fail in his faith. He could lack faith. He could, he could fail to trust God. And if Paul was concerned about that for himself, even more so for us, right? And that's why he says in verse 1, for because of this, because I know I can spiritually fail, because of this, I do not want you to be unaware. And then through this chapter, he warns us of the potential for spiritual failure. Paul wanted the church to be aware of the steps that could lead to spiritual failure. And the warning is this. This is the warning that we're going to consider in this text this morning. When you think you can spiritually stand on your own, take heed lest you fall. What are the steps to, that lead to spiritual failure? Well, we're going to look at two of them next week. And this week, we're just going to look at the very first one. The first one is it starts with the deception of self-confidence. And that's in verses 1 through 5. It starts with the deception of self-confidence. And then in verses 6 through 11 that we'll look at next week, it spirals with the desires of your flesh, and then it shocks with divine condemnation. And then verse 13 will be encouraged because there's the hope for us, that there's no temptation that has overtaken us, but that which is common. But God is faithful. He provides a way of escape. And so we'll look at that next week. But verse number 12 really is the summation of these 12 verses. In fact, look at verse 12. This is the conclusion of verses 1 through 11. Verse 12 says this, Therefore, in conclusion, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, coming up with a proposition statement this week was really easy. Because I went to chapter 11 or chapter 10, verse 12, and I looked at that and I went, well, there it is right there. This is the whole point he wants to get across to us right here, that those who think that they stand need to take heed lest they're going to fall. In fact, actually, I even got my outline from this verse as well, because you can see at the very beginning, he says, let anyone who thinks he stands. So that, that's someone who has been deceived with their own self-confidence that they're okay. And the rest of it, take heed lest he, fall, lest he fall. We'll look at that next week. Verse 12 there, you see the primary command of this text. What is that? What is the primary command in verse 12? Do you see that in there? It's what? To take heed. This is the word that means to be on guard. This is a present tense. This is something that's ongoing. This is every day. Every day, you need to be on guard. Every day, you need to be taking heed, to be aware of something that you could spiritually fall. 
Mark chapter 13, Jesus uses this Greek word, same Greek word, over and over. And this is a, a story when Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. This is during the Passion Week, the most important week of Jesus' life on earth, right? The most important thing is going to happen at the end of that week. Christ is going to die and be resurrected. And he's on this Mount of Olives. There's a valley right there. And on the other side is Jerusalem. And there's the beautiful temple. And the disciples get up there. They just left the temple. And they say to Jesus, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And they, they have their mind and their eyes on these beautiful marble stones. They're glistening. They see the buildings that are overlaid in gold. And they say, wow, Jesus, have you seen those buildings? You're seeing them too, right? And Jesus, yeah, he sees the buildings, but he doesn't care. Because <laughs> Jesus knows there's something more important that's going on. You see, Satan is behind the scenes, and he's going to be coming after these guys. Five times in Mark 13, Jesus says, take heed, be on guard, be aware, guys. And unfortunately, none of them took heed. Within a few days, one betrayed the Lord. One denied and lied about the Lord, and the rest spiritually fell away in fear. And so church, this is a text for us today in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, to be aware, to open up our spiritual eyes. And so we're just going to look at the first point here this morning. That is the first step toward spiritual failure is the deception of self-confidence. Notice verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands. You see, it starts in the mind. It starts with your thoughts. You believe something is true, but you're deceived in that. Spiritual decline starts with a way of thinking that is overconfident about yourself. It's the mindset that, I got this. Like, I've been doing pretty good spiritually. I think I'm okay without the Lord. Maybe today could be a break from Jesus. Maybe I don't need to trust the Holy Spirit today. Maybe I don't need God's word in my life this week. I think, I think I'm going to be okay. And Paul warns, watch out, wake up, be on guard. The storm is about to hit your life. What, what would lead us to this, this self-confidence? Well, Paul instructs us to look at the biblical examples of the Old Testament to identify this problem. Paul recalled Israel's history and how they spiritually failed and reminded us to go back and look at that. So look at verse number one. The Holy Spirit had Paul write down this, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And then he goes through here and he lists in verses one through four, five spiritual blessings that all of Israel experienced. Look at verse number one. He says, all were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. Verse two, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And, that, and the rock was Christ. Do you notice all the alls in there? Do you know why he's doing that? Because of verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So they all got to experience the blessings, 
but the majority of them did not please God. Some people are deceived to think that if, if God was just better to me, or if God did this for me or gave me this, then I would trust him. Then I would serve him. And you know what the answer to that is? No, you wouldn't. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at the example of Israel. Look at other Bible examples, but even just the scripture is teaching that this morning. You wouldn't do that because you would still follow your own sinful desires. Because in the end of the day, what you really want is not God. You really want what you want. So no matter how much God gave you, for you it is keep upon your own sinful desires. Think about the seriousness of this verse here. Nevertheless, with most of them. How many Israelites came out of slavery in Egypt? Well, Bible scholars estimate it was around 2 million. And I could share the reasons for that afterwards if you want to know all the details. So there were about 2 million Israelites that God delivered from slavery in Egypt. So think about all that they experienced that they're talking about here. And yet, how many of them actually made it into the promised land? Out of 2 million, how many? Only two. And do you know why all the rest didn't make it in? Because they didn't please God. In fact, even the leader, even Moses himself didn't make it in. So this should be a very sobering text for us. If out of probably over 2 million people that experienced this amazing blessing, these amazing blessings, if they didn't please God, what about a group like us? And so this is something that should sober us. Let's think about the blessings that God gave them because the blessings that God gave them actually relate to many of the blessings that God has given to us. Look at verse number one. He says, our fathers were all under the cloud. This recalls God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt. And then he led them out of Egypt by a cloud. By day, there was a pillar of, of a cloud. And by night, there was a pillar of fire. This was a visible manifestation of God's glory. The cloud, the fire was not God. They were not to worship that as God. It was a way for them to say, I'm following God as God led them out. Of course, they didn't know where they were going either. So it, it directed them where to go. But even out of that cloud, God sometimes spoke to them, Exodus chapter 33. The Bible says God used that cloud to confuse the army of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 14, a dark cloud came over them. Psalm 105.39 says that cloud covered them, likely it covered them from the hot sun of the desert. It also says that it gave them light at night. And so here you have God's kindness upon Israel. I mean, he led them out, but they knew where they were going. They had a GPS, right? They knew where they were going, not because they knew, but because they were following the one who knew. God protected them from the hot sun. God gave them light at night. Think about how dark it would have been out there. And there you have the Shekinah glory. Was God good to them? Or how about in verse 1, he says, they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. The sea is the Red Sea. This recalls the miracle of God saving Israel 
when the Egyptian army decided to change their mind and try to recapture the Israelite people. Remember, you had here two million Israelites on the shore of the Red Sea, and they're penned in. Behind them, they have the Egyptian army. In front of them is this great sea. What are they going to do? They're toast, right? No. The Bible says that God instructed Moses to lift up his rod. The sea parted, and they were able to go down and walk on the dry ground. And that was clearly a miracle of God. It was a miracle that physically saved their lives. And then verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The word baptized means to immerse. And it's the picture that Israel was under the cloud on the shore, and then they went in the sea. And of course, they walked on the, the dry ground, so they were not getting wet, but they went under the sea, right? They went under the surface of the water, the waters stood on each side and they were on the dry ground, but they went into the sea. And as each Israelite stepped into that dry path and each step they took, they descended down more and more into the dry sea and they were, you could say, immersed, baptized into the sea. So each step was a step of faith that identified them first here with Moses as their deliverer <clears throat> Moses was the one by the power of God that delivered Israel. And so as they stepped into that, they were saying, I identify with Moses, I'm following him, not going back to Egypt. But also, they were um, immersed under the sea. They were, in some sense, baptized into the sea. And it's interesting to see these parallels. You see these parallels between Israel and us, God speaks his word to us for Israel at the very beginning. He spoke through that cloud to Moses. And, and for us, God speaks to us. He speaks to us through the word of God. God miraculously saved Israel. Right? He, he, God is a God who saves, and he saved them from slavery in Egypt. And God is the one who miraculously saves us. What's the miracle that saves us? It's the miracle of the new birth. I was meeting with a guy a couple weeks ago, and I was just listening to his testimony, and isn't it fun to sit down with someone and hear how God transformed their life? He was talking about how before he came to Christ, he was miserable. He was enslaved to his drugs and his alcohol and shackled by his lust. And then, although he knew the gospel, someone came to him and told it to him again, and he realized, yes, that's true. I need to believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he surrendered his heart to Christ. He cried out to the Lord to be saved, and God did a miracle in his soul. And this day, he's free from those shackles of sin, but also free in the joy of Jesus Christ. Every soul born into this world is enslaved to sin, and this is the worst part, they're doomed to hell. Every soul, no matter what home you're born in, when, no matter what country you come from. So therefore, every person needs to be rescued. And it's only possible by a miracle. And you know what? I can't do miracles. You can't do miracles. God's the one who does the miracle. And it's by the power of his Holy Spirit. And if you're in here today and you're without Christ, 
He can do a miracle in your soul. You have to surrender yourself. You can't, you got to stop working and try and do it yourself. You can't make your own miracle. You have to trust that only Jesus can save you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Israel was physically saved from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. And for us, God spiritually saves us from the slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. And then once a Christian is saved, what does God want them to do? What's the first step of obedience? It's baptism. So like Israel took the step under the water to identify with Moses, you can see in that verse they were baptized into Moses, they identified with Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Christians, we are to take the step into the water of baptism to publicly identify with our deliverer, which is who? Who's our deliverer? Jesus Christ. And that's that's the picture of baptism. It's identifying with Christ and what he's done for us. Baptism doesn't save. But friend, if you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, God wants you to take that step of obedience. And so here's another invitation. If you've never gotten the waters, not necessarily these waters, but the waters of baptism, and identify with Christ in that way, please obey Christ in that. It's what he wants you to do. And then look at verse 3. God spoke to Israel. He saved Israel. They were baptized into Moses. And then verse 3, all ate the same spiritual food, and drank the same spiritual drink. Here, God is providing for Israel. What is the spiritual food there? Well, it's miraculous food. What's the miraculous food? What was the miraculous food? Manna, that's right. It means what, or what is that? You know, it was something that they had not seen before. And so they would go out and see this, and it would drop from heaven, and they called it what? What is it? Literally, it fell from the sky. God created it and dropped it down every day for his people. And you think about it, as they're in this wilderness, if you have two million people, eventually you run out of your goats and your sheep, and especially if they don't have places for them to to eat grass, if it's a desert, and you'd probably run out of the wild animals. So what are you going to eat? Well, God took care of them every day, each morning except on the Sabbath, But every other morning, God dropped down manna from heaven. The scripture says it tasted like honey. It could be ground into flour and made into cakes and bread. It could be boiled or eaten directly. I mean, there was hundreds of uses for it. I mean, think of all the recipes they had for manna. All these women sharing, like, here's how you can use manna, you know. And 40 40 years, they could have those recipes, I guess. God also provided meat. Another supernatural event, God dropped quail for them to eat. The Bible says that there was probably two to three foot high um, stacks of quail. If you do the estimate, the calculations and kind of today's numbers, then each person would have been able to gather about six to eight bushels of meat. I read a commentator that went through all the numbers on this, and it's just astounding to think about. Like, did God provide for them? Absolutely he did. God was very good to them. Verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink. So do you recall when they needed water, they were thirsty, and so the rock gave them water. They always had enough to drink. They always had enough to eat. 
God did all of that supernaturally for them, and they got to see with their own eyes. It's interesting to see these parallels, isn't it? It's interesting to see the parallel between Israel and how God sustained them with the supernatural food from heaven. And you think about the New Testament church. God supernaturally sustains us as well with bread from heaven. What's the bread from heaven? That's Christ. That's his word. We are supernaturally sustained by the word of Christ. And what is the word of Christ? Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It's the whole thing. It's, for whatever reason, very popular by many politicians to you know, say, well, the Jesus Christ never said this. I'm sorry, but if it's in the Bible, Jesus Christ said it, okay? God the Father commissioned Jesus to be the word, the power of the Holy Spirit has communicated that to us. And so, so we have Christ's words here, and they, they are to nourish our souls. We, we need God's word. We get the nourishment of God's word through personal Bible study. We get the nourishment of God's word through classes like these teachers teach. We get it through, for us as a church, our primary time is the preaching of God's word right here. So it's so important for us to, to value the, these times, these personal times of Bible study and these corporate times of, of being in God's word. I think I might have said this before, but I was reading about this recently again. The Puritans, they paralleled the Sunday morning sermon with going to the market each week. And, and back then that was, you know, we can go every day or we can even have, have the groceries shipped to our house, you know. How many of you do that now? That's kind of a common thing, I guess, now. But you think about back then, if you got to go to town, to the market, it's basically once, maybe twice a week. And so they would go and get their food, and they would use that food to nourish them the rest of the week. And they, they view the Sunday morning sermon that way. They, they came with such seriousness, the Sunday morning sermon, they wanted to get as much as they could, and they could glean from that, and then the rest of the week feed their family and, and feed their own souls, so I think it's important to think about that as I was reading this. I was thinking, how important was it for Israel to be nourished from that bread from heaven? How important is it for the church to be nourished from God's word? Can I just give you a few tips to think about? I mean, let me encourage you just to think about a couple things. As you come to the Sunday morning ser service here, I think it could be helpful if you got a notebook, maybe a piece of paper, and write down some notes, especially if you're a child or a teenager in here and you're wondering what to do. Sometimes doing something with your hands can be helpful. And one of the reasons we put slides up here like this is so you can do that. So you can write those things down and you can have those with you. And, and maybe take a couple key phrases or a couple verses and, and, and take those with you throughout the week. Use those to discuss what God is teaching you. You can take those notes and maybe during lunch you can talk about what did, what did God teach us during our time in God's word this morning. Maybe I would even suggest one other thing. Maybe each Sunday you can write down one application, one thing that you can do this week to obey God's word. Sometimes people think about God's word, whether it be reading it in the morning or in the evening or whether it be Sunday morning sermon, and they can think, you know, I'm, I'm fine. You know, I've read a lot of the Bible. Or, I've heard a lot of preaching. I don't really need another sermon, you know? It's like, I think I can skip this Sunday. I don't really need it. I think the warning of this text speaks to that. When you think you can spiritually stand, I don't need another sermon. I don't need to be in my Bible. Take heed lest you fall. 
And so Israel experienced the blessings of being nourished with God's word. Look at verse 4. This is very interesting. Verse 4. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, that the rock was Christ. What is that talking about? Well, Jesus Christ is the second person of the triune God. And this verse is telling us here that it was Jesus himself with Israel. We often think of the Old Testament and the New Testament and think, well, well, God was a different God in the Old Testament than the New Testament. No, that's not true. Now, now God did use national Israel in a different way than he's using the church. Like National Israel and the church are two def- different entities. And, and I think God has a future for Israel someday. So we're not national Israel. We're not the replacement for Israel. So there's a national Israel, there's the church. But the way God works is the same in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. God works according to his nature, and God is a triune God. So do you realize in the, in the Old Testament there, it was Christ himself who spoke to them in that cloud? Do you realize he's saying that rock was Christ? It was Christ that was with them. It was his presence with them. Verse 4, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. He was with them. And who was that spiritual rock? Who was with them? It's Christ. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. He was with Israel. And in what way was he with Israel? Well, God the Father sent Christ to provide for Israel, to speak to Israel, to be with them, and he did it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you realize it was Christ who miraculously delivered Israel? It was Christ who provided spiritual food and water for them. This is taught here in this text and many other texts in the New Testament. The Father commissioned Christ to favor and care for his special people. So Christ was present with them. And and how God, how our triune God worked in the Old Testament is the same way he works in the New Testament. The God, God the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so Jesus came, and he lived, he died, and he was resurrected, and he did it all in the power of the Holy Spirit. The triune God saves and sanctifies his church according to the Father's will through the work of Christ by the power of the Spirit. And so that's how God is working in our church today. And the point here is that Israel was highly, highly favored by God. Christ miraculously spoke to them, delivered them, provided for them, and yet verse 5 says what? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. I I was thinking about this. They were the most blessed, the most favored people on the face of the earth at that time. Did that cause them to submit to God in praise and repentance and worship? No. And why? Because they were committed to their own will, to following their own desires. And here's the warning for us. Our religious upbringing, our spiritual associations coming to church, seeing God work, does not guarantee a person will follow Christ. 
This is the sobering reality for grandparents and for parents in here, right? Because just because your kids are in this service right now and they know Christ, they've seen Christ work in your life, does not mean they will grow up to follow Christ. And all of us in here have stories that we can tell of that, can't we? And so this sobers us to recognize that we need to pray that God will get a hold of their heart. And don't ever, as a parent and pride, think, well, my kids are fine. They got it. Look at how good of a job we're doing. And I think about that, and I think, take heed, let you fall, right? Because that, it's that time where you're like, I got it, God. It's, oh, everything's okay. And we're shocked. But often we think that spiritual blessings in our lives will insulate us from falling, and that's a lie. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I think about the blessings that we have. Think about the blessings we have as Christians in America. There's a lot of crazy things happening in our country, a lot of wicked things, I should say. But boy, do we have it a lot better than a lot of other people. Think about it. We have God's word right here. And we can read it. And that sounds kind of dumb to say maybe, but there's so many societies that have been illiterate. They couldn't even read God's word. Not only can we read it, we can listen to it. We can come to services like this. And as far as right now, we're not threatened to be shut down. Maybe in a couple years, maybe in a couple months, who knows. We've had so much favor, so much blessing from God. But we might be tempted to think that those blessings will therefore guarantee our future spiritual faithfulness. And that's not where our hope and our dependence rests. It's not in me. It's not in what I've done. It's not in what's happened. It's not in my environment. It's in Christ and his power and his work. And you know what's interesting? I think that spiritual falls often come after spiritual highs. That's something you see in the scripture. I mean, here Israel has this spiritual high, and then it's like they come crashing down. 2 Samuel 10 says that David was attacked by the Syrians, and so he led his army, 2 Samuel 10, 18. The Syrians fled before him. David killed the Syrians, the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen. And so he has this great battle. He wins the day. I mean, he's once again the hero. You know, everyone's cheering for, Dan, for David. Then 2 Samuel 11, next chapter, he goes to his house. He goes to the top of his roof. He looks down. There's a woman bathing. He lusts with desire. He falls into sin, and he destroys his life. Elijah was literally on the mountaintop experience when he fought, spiritually fought, the prophets of Baal. You know, there's the, there's the altar of God, and there's the altar of Baal, and they're all cutting themselves and screaming, and they're trying to get Baal to have fire come down from heaven. Elijah's looking at it, he's laughing, ha, 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 you know, maybe Baal's going to the bathroom. <laughs> they stop, and he just gets on his knees and prays, and here the fire comes down. And then later on, Elijah gets on his knees, and he prays, God, send rain, and rain comes. Then Jezebel, Satan's puppet, says, I'm going to kill you. And he runs, and he cries, and he hides in a cave, and he says, I just want to die. He was suicidal. Or I think about 
Solomon, here's a guy, all these riches, all this wealth. I mean, who gave it all to him? God did. And across from his home on the other hill, on the other side of the hill, he builds an altar, a temple really, to these idols, and he he falls into sin. And over and over and over, we could read stories about this in the New Testament in the Old Testament, New Testament, the Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus transfigured on the mountain. And think about, think about all the amazing things that happened with that. Then they go down and Jesus rebukes them. Oh, you of little faith. And so the point of this is that we must be aware of the steps that lead to spiritual failure. And friends, it starts with the deception of this confidence we have in ourselves. That's why Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's the spiritual pride, I think, that is the most dangerous there. It's the self-confident attitude that, that thinks, well, you know what? I, I'm not going to turn out like that person. I, I, I'm going to go to this university. I can go to this, this class or this college, and, and I'm going to keep my faith. And then you stop reading your Bible, and you stop being faithful to serving the church, and Take a little step here, a little step here, and eventually you find yourself far from God. And it started with that self-confidence that I'm okay. It's the spiritual pride that thinks, I won't be unfaithful to my wife. Can you believe what that pastor did? Or can you believe what that person did? I wouldn't do that. And I'd just have a couple looks maybe and a couple fantasies, and soon you're trapped in the web of your sin. It's the empty certainty that you can fix yourself. Well, I, I know I've been wasting a lot of time, but I'll try harder next week. Or, or I'm having a hard time with my anger. Well, I'll just, just buckle up and maybe I'll just, you know, be kinder this week. And, but you still are unkind. You still wrestle with self-control. And I think it's good to remember that this is all in the context as well of Christian liberties. That's, that's the point he's getting at in this text. Remember, Christian liberties are those freedoms we have to apply the Scripture in different ways that the Scripture is not clear about. It's those things that we say, well, the Bible doesn't say this. Okay, that's Christian liberties. And so the warning here in 1 Corinthians 10 is that in the midst of our Christian liberties, that's where many times we spiritually fall. And so the application here to this text this morning is, yes, depend upon God. Don't depend upon yourself. But also, in regard to Christian liberties, we need to be careful about the Christian liberties we invite into our life and exercise in our life. Many times, it's in the pride of exercising our Christian liberties that we get puffed up in pride, and then we fall. Because because we think things like this, well, I can have that subscription. Like, the Bible doesn't say you can't have a subscription to this video streaming service or I can watch those movies. Like the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not watch this. I have freedom in Christ. Well, yes, you do have freedom in Christ, but maybe the Holy Spirit reminds you that you're tempted to think a certain way, to slide down the pit of temptation when you watch certain things. And so you think back, well, I can control it. Like, I'm okay, I can control it. Oh, really? Can you control it? When you think you can spiritually stand, take heed lest you fall. Or you might think this, well, I can drink that. (laughs) The Bible gives me freedom to drink this. 
I have freedom in Christ. But then the Holy Spirit reminds you maybe of your craving that you like to escape your problems. You like to drown out your problems with that drink. Well, I can control it. I can manage it, you know. I'll just have one. Okay, well, maybe I sometimes have more than two or three. And when you think you can spiritually stand, take heed lest you fall. Oh, we can, we can be alone together. My boyfriend, a boyfriend and girlfriend. I, I can be alone with my girlfriend. I can be alone with my boyfriend. Like, like there's no word in the Bible that says a boy and girl can't be alone in a house together, you know. It's like, that's not the Bible. Are you a legalist or something? But then you know in your heart you really desire intimacy with that person. And you know that your desires are in that way. And Well, we can control it. We can control it. You know, we love God. Oh, oh really? That's going to insulate you? Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And this is a call here for us to depend on God, but also to be wise in how we exercise our Christian liberties. And our Christian liberties are what we do with our time. It's what we watch, what we spend our money on, what we eat, what we drink. And we have freedom. Yes, we have freedom to apply the scriptures in different ways. But we must be aware what choices I make do affect me spiritually. And for the Corinthian church here, it was a temptation to go back to worshiping idols. And we can, we can go buy that meat and eat that meat offered to idols. Idols, nothing. I know what the Bible says about idols. They're nothing. Just stone, you know, or maybe overlaid in gold or something. But in this text here, verse 7, verse 14, two times he says, get away from idol, idol worship. Flee idol worship. And so for them, it was a real serious danger that they could go back into idol worship. So he's saying, you better be careful spiritually. You might think you stand. I can eat that meat. It's no big deal. The Bible doesn't say I can't eat it. But soon you might find yourself bowing to that idol. And I just want to conclude by saying maybe one of the things I get most concerned about, if you're a, a teenager or young person in this room, I think that sometimes you can experience new things, right? You get that device, you hit that age, you have that freedom, and it's like, I can download this, and I can, I can go to this place, and I can drink that, and sometimes we think about those freedoms that we can have, and I think our concern is that in self-confidence, many times we think, I can handle it. I'm okay. I have freedom in this, and yes, you might have freedom to do that, but you need to ask this question, how will that affect your life? Pastor Ben, don't be a legalist. Friend, don't be a fool. I can control it, really? Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall. I think there's two types of people in this room. There are those who are Christians who are fighting every day. Like you're acutely aware of your spiritual danger. You're acutely aware that your heart at any moment can go down the path of sin. And sometimes it does, but you're waking up in the morning, you're keeping this on your mind, you're, you're in prayer, you're depending on the Lord. And so what I want to say to you is don't stop. Like keep going. Keep depending on Christ. It's worth it. Right? Don't get to a, complac a place of complacency. 
Uh, and some of you every day, like you're fighting the war and sometimes you fail. Like we all have times where we fail, but you're like, I'm getting up and I'm trusting the Lord. I'm, I, I want to stay humble. I want to keep praying. I want to keep fighting. And so keep at it. But there could be some in here who are spiritually asleep. You're like driving in neutral down the road. You're like the church of Laodicea that says, oh, I, I've prospered. I don't need anything. I'm okay. Look at I got all these spiritual blessings. Like, I'm okay. That's what Jesus said in Revelation 3 to that church. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. There's some pain coming to your life. So be zealous and repent. And then he says this, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. And sometimes people think about that in regard to someone coming to Christ for salvation, but actually he's talking to the church here. And he's saying, there's some of you who are complacent and Jesus is knocking. He's like, listen, wake up, wake up. Be on guard. You're stepping into spiritual failure. And friends, if that's you, please, Call out to the Lord. Answer the door. Let him in. Surrender your heart to him. Let's pray.